0: Welcome to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We are here demystifying the complex and disturbingly dense world of cybersecurity. I'm Brian, the cybersecurity attorney. He is Ryan, the cybersecurity architect. And today we are going to talk about a particularly dense and particularly complex component of cybersecurity, something that I think everyone is familiar with in theory or in overall practice. But what very few people seem fluent with is how it actually works. And what we're talking about today is encryption. Now, this is a subject that I find particularly interesting, one, because it's, you know, so incredibly math-based, and two, because, thank merciful God, I have someone who is much better at math than I am to help me work through all this crazy, crazy stuff. And that person is, quite helpfully, my co-host on this podcast. Ryan, how are you doing today?
1: Doing great. It's a really interesting topic that we're about to dig into today, so um, I think we get right at. it.
0: All right. So I think everybody understands that encryption is something that is used pretty much all the time. Now you see encryption or cryptography. I mean, the word is a part of the cryptocurrency, the you know, the crazy, psychotic, self-destructive tool that many people in the tech industry have attached themselves to. But encryption itself is an incredibly important way of keeping things protected and secret. So when we're talking about encryption, we're not going to get into the heavy, heavy details of how all this stuff gets encrypted and what it really gets changed to and everything like that. But largely encryption by its very nature has a basic structure. Ryan, help us out with that.
1: Yeah, so encryption at the core is modifying your data to a position where it can't be read until you're ready to have it read again. And so in order to do that, you really got to break it down into the three distinct pieces that make up the chain of encryption. And that's going to be the data to start with, you know, the data that's plain text, readable at the moment that it begins. You've got the engine, which is the encryption, the algorithm set that's used to actually process the data and transform it to its unreadable form. And then you end up with the key, which is the access tool to go in and out of the data. And those pieces can vary a little based on the type of encryption, but that's really kind of the general core behind the concepts of encryption. You use the key to start the encryption process and to do the decryption of the data. You use the engine to actually transform the data itself by processing the key and running it against its algorithms. And then you've got the data itself, which is the piece being transformed in and out. It sounds to me like what we're talking about is kind of, if you imagine a scanner,
0: very regular document scanner that you send paper through. What's on the paper would be the data the engine itself would be the scanner and then the key would be the button that that turns the scanner on now i mean obviously that's not a perfect metaphor but if you imagine it that way and then the paper goes through the scanner and then what comes out on the other end is unreadable then you put it back through with the same key and it's readable again So basically that's the system you've got the thing that you use to essentially trigger it or that is what makes it work the key you've got the information that it's being changed but the heart of it is that engine
1: that's correct. And you actually had a really good breakdown right there of symmetric encryption, where you said, you know, you use the key to run that or to process that one way and in the reverse, which is slightly different from when you get into the asymmetric encryption, then where you've got a pair of keys. So you can actually set up that transaction to be distinct between two different people that have two different sets. In a lot of cases, it's really used for kind of one way secure communications. Somebody can maintain their private key and post out a public key, which you just hand out to the world. So anyone that wants to get it can use it to encrypt a message send it one way into you and you're the only person that knows how to retrieve that message and deal with that okay let's talk about that because you mentioned a couple different things there you talked about both the concept of
0: asymmetric and symmetric encryption and it's also referred to secret key and public key encryption what is the difference between symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption
1: There's a couple major differences. At the core, the most major would be uh, speed and efficiency. Symmetric encryption, just due to the fact that there's a single key used, and there's a lot less time involved in processing that encryption so uh much quicker again symmetric encryption is usually handled when you've got a single user or a single component involved in the data transaction so you only really need the one key to lock and unlock the data because you've got one master that's effectively delegating access to it or if you've got one pair of people that are just using that one single key as a tool to facilitate communication or file transfer data transfer etc and want to do it securely so like you and i we could use symmetric encryption because we just both have a copy of that one key. So it's two copies, same key. We use that to pass the data back and forth. And as long as those keys aren't compromised, you and I can securely pass data.
0: It sounds to me that in that particular context, that speed and possibly even complexity of that key could be a huge advantage, but it becomes almost almost an inverse relationship between the number of people who have access to the key and the actual security of that encryption process.
1: Yeah, and it comes down to use cases too. So, symmetric encryption would be really good for something like point to point U to me, but it's not easily scalable let's say that i'm the only one ever receiving data you're just sending stuff to me so we both have that same key but now if i want to build that kind of relationship with a hundred other people at scale now i have to produce a hundred full pairs of those keys and now i have to maintain half of a hundred key pairs where each of you guys have the other half in a style of like asymmetric encryption i hold the one private key which allows me to decrypt everything and then i just publicly share the other half of the key and just say it doesn't matter if anyone has that because they're not using that to really handle any decryption on their end. What they're using that for is to lock the box effectively before they ship it to me. And then I'm the only one that can unlock it. So for instances like that, where if I'm the only intended recipient of something, that makes a lot more sense because then I can really go at scale a lot more easily and be able to manage that where I still only have to manage the one key. And then I manage the one public key that everybody else has. You start talking about the
0: public key. That's our asymmetric encryption. So the symmetric encryption has essentially one key that both encrypts and decrypts. What is different about the public key encryption? How does the public key come into it?
1: Again, with something like a symmetric encryption, you've got more points of potential compromise for your encryption because all points of the transaction have to have access to that same key, which means if any one of those points becomes compromised, you end up running into an issue where you end up having to cycle keys and start the process over, risk your data being potentially compromised. With something like the public-private keys, you've got only a single point really that you need to worry about as far as compromise as far as being able to decrypt those transactions. So that makes that a little bit easier to secure from a point of doing more public file transfer.
0: With symmetric encryption, what we're talking about is literally everyone needs the same key to encrypt and the same key to decrypt. With the asymmetric, what you're talking about is that everyone gets a copy of that public key and then every individual has their own essential private key. Is that right?
1: That would be correct. Yep. So the way that you would do those communications, if we wanted to do that two ways, we would each have a private key that we would maintain and we would each publish a public key. So I would go and grab your public key to, encrypt something i want to send to you use your public key that way i encrypt it i can never decrypt it again but nobody else can except for you because you have the only key that's able to decrypt that likewise to return the transaction you would come and retrieve my public key encrypt the file send it to me and then i'm the only one that's able to, to reverse the transaction
0: You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience, Cybersecurity, and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. There's one other topic. It's more like a third function. You keep hearing all the time. Every time someone gets breached or something like that, you hear about hash values and hash functions, something like that. How does that play into encryption?
1: So hashing and encryption are really two different things. They kind of, they get blurred a lot in the middle because encryption at its core is modifying the data itself so that it becomes unreadable and then return it to a readable status what hashing is is hashing is more for validating change control of the data to make sure that the data holds its integrity that the data is not modified so you can use stuff like back in the day md5 was a huge thing people would use md5 to validate that a file if you were downloading source code from a repository somebody could upload a copy of their new code they would upload it with a hash so that if anyone goes in and modifies that code you can run it through md5 and if the hashes has come up the same the code's the same as it was when it was uploaded by the original person. There's integrity. If there's a different hash that comes out, that means there's been some sort of modification to that code. So it's really used to kind of do validation more than anything else. When you hear about things like passwords being stored as hashes, that's not really like an encrypted version of their password. There is an algorithm that's used to generate the hash from those passwords and then the hashes are stored in lieu of the password. So that way you're not actually storing passwords in those Systems, you're storing a hash that's been generated by the system to process those passwords so it has a way to take and validate those inputs when they come in later. It's like a version of encryption without being traditional encryption. It's a version of the encryption, but you're not, the output you're dealing with isn't the actual data in its original form. What you're dealing with is a result of processing that data against something else. And the hash is just basically saying, like, so we generate a random number, let's say, two and we take whatever data we've got and we multiply everything by two and that becomes our hash so when somebody gives me a piece of data later and says hey is this the same data from before i take it and i multiply it by two and i look at the original hash and if they compare i go yeah that's the same data now that's a super simplify like don't that's not proper but
0: right but the important thing there is that. but to say that if you were breached and someone got that information from you and they got what you store if let's say that's the passwords let's use that example if you store all of the passwords as the actual password times two if someone got that information they couldn't then turn around and then use that plug that in and access your account because we would be wrong
1: well if the hash was that simple then they could but of course they could break it down by proper hashing yes There should be no easy way to reverse a hash back to its original form because you can't reverse the algorithm without having access to the original engine.
0: Okay, so basically it's something that stores your entered value as a different value so that in the event that someone else maliciously got a hold of it, they couldn't simply use that value to access your account. They would have to understand how that value was determined.
1: That's mostly correct. And and in some instances, they did find ways. There are people that have found ways to use that. There are past the hash issues or methods out there to access accounts by being able to derive those hashes and pass those along and actually complete authentication with those. And there's a lot of hardening techniques that you can use to really prevent a lot of that from happening. A lot of that was just kind of oversights over the course of years as the maturity of cybersecurity was built into systems.
0: We're going to talk about some more specific things in subsequent episodes. And one of the biggest things we're going to talk about is how encryption and the way encryption is handled now is going to be impacted by the eventual development of quantum computing. But before we get there, let's talk about a couple of basic things. First, what are some good examples that people in the regular world would see when you think of symmetric encryption or private key or secret key encryption? What are some examples of how that is used in the regular world?
1: A lot of the examples that people probably don't recognize right up front are gonna be the way a lot of internal encrypted email exchanges occur because those are all symmetric and it's all handled. Internal to the company using usually private PKI. Other symmetric encryption would be things like connections to routers. People see a lot of those connections between your devices.
0: So, like when you see, I think that probably the most common place I see this is when you see AES encryption on a router
1: when you're setting up like setting up home wireless and things like that
0: and that's because essentially between your router and the devices that are connecting to it you only need in fact you probably only want one key
1: yeah there's some level of trust that's kind of assumed there at that point that the owner of the device that's processing the connections and the owner of the devices that are going to connect to it are all known trusted and are okay to share that same key and you're not offering it up as more of like a public service
0: You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts, as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. What would be examples then of asymmetric encryption that people would encounter in the real world?
1: I know that there's a lot when people are doing, especially like in our industry, when people are doing a lot of data transmissions that need to stay secure. So things like journalists in rough areas trying to pass information back over will do things like this where they'll go through public-private key shares so that they can exchange data with a lot of people at mass.
0: Like any communication system that uses encryption then, pretty much. That's at least a commercial system, right?
1: I think a good heavy majority of those will end up employing some sort of asymmetric encryption.
0: And I guess like the uh, people looking at this on a website, don't harp on us too much yet. We haven't gotten our SSL certificate issue straightened out. But if you're using SSL, that's an asymmetric encryption. That is correct. seems like the majority of the encryption that most people are going to encounter on a day-to-day basis is going to be the asymmetric kind.
1: I think most of the encryption that people encounter where they're actually interacting with it on a regular basis will end up tending to probably be a little bit more heavily in the ballpark of asymmetric, where the encryption is handled specifically by systems kind of as a function behind the scenes and the users aren't directly interacting with it in a lot of those instances you tend to see more symmetric and again that's just kind of a broad assumption categorizing things
0: one other area that i really want to help people get a basic understanding of is you see a lot of letters when you deal with encryption but you also see a lot of numbers now i know that the numbers are different between symmetric key and asymmetric keys but you see like for example we'll go back to the routers the great example because they all seem to want to advertise whether they use rsa 128 or rsa 256 what is the number you know 256 6-bit encryption. What does that mean?
1: yeah so the number of bits without getting too overly technical is the level of complexity of the algorithm that is being run against the data to encrypt it again something like if you do a really basic times two like we were talking about for the hashes that's a very simple algorithm to run something against which means it's very simple to reverse that encryption so going to larger bit sets in your algorithms adds more complexity to the equation it makes the outputs a lot larger which just computationally becomes much more difficult to reverse through like brute force and through more manual methods, which really forces you into having to access the key in order to be able to decrypt the data. There's no way to just run cycles against the data to reverse it uh, like you can with some of the weaker encryption methods. Basically, the higher number
0: means the more complex. I've heard some people refer to it very basically as the length of the key, which is not really an exact description, right?
1: It's not really. I think it's just said that way because it's the easiest to just take it. It is a pretty complex topic. I guess if we're looking for an
0: easy way to understand it, you know, if you were to describe it as the length of the key, 128 is going to be less complex than 256.
1: Correct. 256 will be more complex. It's going to generate a more complex output. And at the same time, that also means it's going to require more resources to process that transaction back and forth through encryption. So again, what 128, if it's sufficient for your needs, will be faster than 256. So if speed ever becomes an issue, that's the one point where you have to start looking for some of those compromises with encryption. But 256 in and of itself should end up being more secure if it's employed properly.
0: Well, there's a lot to dive into with basic encryption. One of the next topics that we are going to address on this is a broader understanding of something that's in the news a lot lately and called end-to-end encryption. But that involves a bit deeper discussion than we have time to get into today. We will be addressing it though, so do come back for that episode. If there's any specific questions you have on encryption or things that you would like us to deal with more directly we strongly encourage you to go to our website www.fearlessparanoia.com and you can either leave us a comment there or reach out to us on any of the social media sites that haven't currently banned us for no reason whatsoever which at the moment includes facebook and linkedin can go ahead and accept the notable omission there for whatever value you want to take out of it we want to thank you for joining us today on fearless paranoia
1: i am ryan and he is brian and we appreciate you guys listening in and look forward to more conversations about cybersecurity topics in the future